We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now, I, I'd like to say just a word further. Last night, I, I was looking at the newspaper. I usually check the headlines and the uh, editorial pages of the newspapers uh, before I retire at night. And I noticed uh, on the, in the religious section of our local Piedmont yesterday, three things that really grieved me. Uh, and I thought I owe it to you and to Greenville uh, just to state my convictions. Uh, after all, I am a pastor and I, I'm not a fly by night. I may be a lot of things, but nobody could call me that. I've been sticking around <laughs> for a long time. I've never preached and pastored anywhere but Greenville in these 34 years of my ministry, so I've been around. I don't plan to go off anywhere either, by the way. So. I feel like I have a moral obligation and a spiritual obligation to my people and to my county. Number one, there's a, a tent meeting that's beginning. Uh, you might have saw the ad in the paper, and I'll not call it the names, uh, but uh, in the ad it says that this preacher was fasting and praying and that Jesus approached him and touched him in the palms of his hands and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, now, if I read that uh, advertisement correctly, he's telling people that Jesus literally touched him in the palms of his hands. And I don't believe that. And I think you're a little bit naive to believe that. I think there are spiritual people in Tabernacle as spiritual as anybody I've ever known. And I've walked with God for a long time, but I've never seen him. And I've, uh, I question a man that tells me that Jesus walks up to him and touches him in the palm of his hand. I just question that. I think what he's trying to do is to tell people I've got supernatural power in my hands now and therefore you come to the tent meeting you can get healed. I doubt that. I, I just re reject it. I don't believe in that. And I feel like it's my moral duty and spiritual duty to let Greenville know that I'm opposed to that kind of thing. Then the second thing I saw in the paper last night that grieved me was that one of the Presbyterian churches, and I'll not call the name, you can get the paper and check it, one of the uptown Presbyterian churches, that they're preaching the gospel this morning with a dance. And that four ladies are going to express the gospel in a dance in the church. Four women will be dancing before the congregation. And with that dance, with their bodies, they're going to express the gospel. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's a long way from old-time Bible religion. And if I was a member of that church, I'd leave it so quick, I wouldn't be around. I'd let them have it. That's about as foolish as anything. You know, the Bible says, for it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching. And it doesn't say anywhere that it pleases God for four women to dance before a congregation. And I question whether that's right. I think it's wrong. I think it's suggestive. I think it's contrary to the Bible. And I would not recommend that. I'm opposed to that. And I want Greenville to know that I'm opposed to that. Amen. And then the third thing I saw was that one of our neighboring churches is having a visiting preacher this morning. And tonight also one of our Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches. And the speaker tonight is a Pentecostal. And... Uh, 
If he's Pentecostal as Pentecostals are, that means he speaks in tongues. And I don't think a Baptist church ought to have a Pentecostal preacher in the pulpit. I, I think that's wrong. I think that's a compromise. I think that's the ecumenical movement. And I question the wisdom of that. I won't call it the names, but you can get the paper and check it for yourself. But I felt like I ought to say those three things. I, I grieve when I see a departure from the ancient landmarks and the beaten paths. And I want, the, uh, I want the young people, the students in our Bible Institute, and I want the members of our congregation to know that Tabernacle believes in the Bible. Amen. And we, we try to preach it. I wouldn't say, say it's the best job you've ever heard or the best job that could be done, but at least we strike at the ball in preaching. And the day will never be when I'm pastor of this church that we'll try to portray the gospel by dancing. I told my wife, wouldn't I be a pretty mess if I tried to dance the gospel? <laughs> Tell you the truth, nobody's going to come to see a man dance. If they come to see it, they'll see it because women are dancing, and they see it because they're lustful. And I question whether that's pleasing to God. And then uh, as long as I'm pastor, you won't have a tongue speaker in this pulpit either. No, I, I haven't got anything against the Pentecostal people, but I'm a Baptist. And I don't believe in speaking in tongues as the initial evidence of being filled with the Spirit of God. And so I, I couldn't compromise to that degree. Amen. And then I don't believe that man had Jesus touched the palm of his hands either. You say, well, you're an unbeliever. You don't believe in the power of God. I was around before those boys started preaching. I've been preaching this old-time religion a long time. And you don't know what you're talking about if you don't think I believe in the power of God. I believe the book. I believe the power of God. But I, I don't believe in this far out stuff that's unscriptural. I don't believe that. And you better take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt. You know, the Bible says, try the spirits to see whether they be of God or not. And the fact that a Presbyterian church is dancing the gospel this morning don't make it right. The only thing that makes the gospel right is this book. Amen. And the fact that a Baptist church is having a Pentecostal speak in the pulpit tonight don't make it right, brother. No, the fact that a man says, Jesus touched me in the palm of my hands, don't make it so. You better try the spirits to see whether they be of God or not. Now that's in the book. All right. Now I want to speak to you today from James chapter number 5 and uh, verse number 16. And I want to speak to you as God leads my soul today on prayer. And there's a, there's a statement, a little clause in James 5 that I'd love to use as a text. Let's begin with verse number 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, the prayer of the elders, shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Oh, what a verse of scripture. The effectual, that means emotional. Fervent, that means white hot. The zealous, emotional, fervent prayer of a righteous man gets the job done and gets answers from the Lord. And the only kind of praying that gets answers from the Lord is this kind of praying. Uh, a prayer as a ritual does not get an answer. 
A prayer without emotion does not get an answer. A prayer as a habit does not get an answer. Vain repetition in our praying does not get an answer. It's the effectual, fervent prayer, the inward, emotional, white heart, zealous, fervent prayer of a righteous, godly man uh, availeth much. And the only kind of praying that God hears and answers is this kind of praying. Now, that's one of the reasons that I, I love to, to pray in unison with our brethren. When I, when I go to the prayer room, I've gone to the prayer room here at Tabernacle many times and found a dozen or 15 men on their knees and they're all praying. And they're praying fervently and zealously, loudly, some of, some of them. And I get out and join my feeble prayer with theirs and we lift our voices unto God uh, in petition to the Father. And my soul in many a time has been warmed and blessed by the fervent prayer of these men that I find upon their knees in the old-fashioned prayer room. And that's the kind of praying that I believe in. And that's the kind that gets the job done. If I was at the point of death today and I wanted somebody to come and pray for me, I would not send for a man to open a prayer book and read the 23rd Psalm. I wouldn't need that. The orderly could do that. The nurse could do that. But if I wanted somebody to come to pray for me, I'd want an old-fashioned, Bible-believing Baptist preacher to come and stand in my bed and pray a hold through to heaven and ask God to come miraculously and do for me what I needed. And I wouldn't care how long he prayed or how loud he prayed as long as he got through to heaven, you see. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now verse 17, Elijah. Oh, what a personality. Every time you mention his name, it's like almost an electric shock goes through our bodies. Elijah, a man that was not afraid of king or queen. Elijah, a man that walked up to the palace of Ahab and knocked on his door and announced to him that it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years and turn and walk away. Elijah that trusted God for everything that he was and was fed by the ravens, bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat at nighttime. Elijah, a man subject to the same passions as you and I are, but he prayed. And Elijah was a man subject to like passions. If you're ever tempted to give it up because you think you're unworthy, remember Elijah. If you ever get on your knees to pray and you feel a weak, remember Elijah. If you ever get on your knees to pray and the old devil gets down beside you, and sometimes he does, and he begins to bombard your soul and indict you and call you a hypocrite and call you dishonest, call you insincere, and bring up the old sins of your past and say, you're not worthy to be upon your knees. Just remember Elijah, a man subject to like passions as we. There isn't one single trial or test that one of you ever had upon your knees, but that Elijah didn't have a like trial test upon his knees. Remember Elijah. Elijah, a man subject to like passion as me and you. And I get a great deal of comfort from that. I don't pray because I think I'm anything. I don't pray because I have any inside road on God. I don't believe I have one bit more license to approach God in prayer than you have. I don't believe God will hear my prayer one moment quicker than he'll hear your prayer. The fact that I've been saved a long time doesn't give me an inroad. 
I believe God delights to hear the prayer of his smallest child. Matters not who it may be. Elijah, a man subject to like passion as you and I. And it says, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now what a miracle that is. Elijah prayed and said, Lord God, shut the windows, uh, not for my glory, but uh, to demonstrate that there is a God in Israel. Shut the windows of heaven. In order to demonstrate to Ahab and Jezebel that old time religion is real. Shut the windows of heaven. And God heard the earnest prayer of Elijah and closed those windows up. And it didn't rain for three and a half years on the earth. A tremendous miracle. And everything dried up. The crops dried up. The cattle died. The people almost famished. And before the three and a half years was over, Ahab and Jezebel were desperate. Their stock were dying, their horses were dying, their mules were dying, and their children were undernourished. And it was a pitiful condition in all Israel. You know the story back in 2 Kings, uh, 1 Kings rather, how that Ahab sent his servant out, Obadiah, to hunt for Elijah. And they said to Elijah, our mules and our horses are dying. They were, seemed to be more concerned about their mules and their horses than they were about their children. And finally they found Elijah. And you know the story about the contest on Mount Carmel and so on. But in the next clause in verse 18, it says, And he prayed again. Now I'd like for you to underscore those four words in your Bible. And I want to use them as a text today. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And the rain came, and the famine, and the drought was broken by the same man that closed the windows of heaven three and a half years before. And he prayed again. Now, I want that to linger in your soul. It's been on my heart, just burning in my soul all this week. And he prayed again. May I remind you that praying, praying is an art from which the believer never graduates. Praying is a privilege that you never put aside. Pray, prayer is an opportunity that never becomes diminished. And as long as you live in this earth, the very breath of every believer ought to be prayer. And he prayed again. Now, I don't know how many times I prayed in my lifetime. I couldn't count them, I'm sure. I wouldn't try to tally them up. I haven't prayed as much as I should have prayed. May I confess that first of all. But many times I bowed upon my knees, times that I could not enumerate, times that I cannot remember. I've cried to God upon my knees. Several outstanding prayer meetings stand out in my mind. The five months of praying that we experienced in, uh, at Pelham Baptist Church before Tabernacle was born. Through the whole winter of 47 and 48. In those days, I was not quite as busy in meetings as I am now. And I had more time on my hands. And through the whole winter time, we turned the lights on in that church and cried to God, 25 or 30 of our people, without any singing, without any preaching, without any social fellowship. We came together to pray. We prayed in unison. We narrowed our prayer request down to two things. We asked God to give us souls for our labor and revival for our joy. 
And for five months we cried to God every night. And on Sunday night after I finished preaching, uh, the men would leave the church with me and we'd go out to an old-fashioned cow pastor at 10 o'clock on Sunday night. 15, 20, 25, 30, sometimes more men. And we'd get up on our knees in that cow pastor uh, and pray until the midnight hour. I've come out of that cow pastor many a time, 1 o'clock on Monday morning, crying to God for souls and for revival in our community. Five months we cried. And uh, God only knows the result of that prayer meeting. The revival came. If you have any imagination, the revival came more abundantly than I ever thought God could possibly do or would do in our midst. Revival came. Souls were saved. And five years I stayed in that church to enjoy the fruit of five months of praying. And then since then, 1952, until now we still reap. We still reap the repercussions of that five months of praying in my life here at Tabernacle Baptist Church and in the lives of some of you. That stands out in my mind. I remember one night we went to pray with a group of men, not only from our church at Pelham, this is before Tabernacle was born, but with uh, some of the men from Southside Baptist Church in Greer, where Brother Walter Satterfield was then pastor, and for, with some of the men from uh, several other churches about Greer, and uh, several churches here in the city, uh, Brother Odell Good's church near Taylor's. And there must have been a hundred men that night. Uh, we were having the camp meetings. The camp meeting was born in 1948. And uh, this must have been about uh, 1940, uh, 50 or 51, somewhere along there. And uh, we went out to the woods one night, down by the river to pray. Must have been 50, maybe more men in that company. We went to pray. And we got on our knees there by the river and cried to God and prayed and, and uh, without any singing, without any testimony, begged God, asked God, prayed fervently. Dr. Purser Ray was with us that night. Never will forget it. Dr. Ray lay there upon the ground with his face toward the ground and cried to God and prayed uh, for, for several hours. Some of us uh, left the prayer grounds. I think I left about maybe one or two o'clock that morning, the next morning. And I left behind a dozen or so men still praying on their knees, crying to God. I don't know how much longer they stayed. Maybe until sunrise. We, we planned to pray all night. And, and we did. The most of us prayed most of the night. I think I left, I say, about 2 o'clock. And that meeting stands out in my mind. That prayer meeting stands out in my mind. And then I think of the many prayer meetings that we've had here in our prayer room. Oh, brother. Some of the prayer meetings that I remember when Tabernacle was young, way long before this auditorium was built. This auditorium was finished in 1957. And there was a time when this place where the auditorium sits was just an open lot. And we had a frame building, a little frame building right along here where the L is, that we put up temporarily right after the church was born. We had only the chapel, no Sunday school rooms. And we put up a little frame building with about a dozen Sunday school rooms right here. And upstairs was the prayer room, Brother Jones. You remember that, don't you? Upstairs was the prayer room. An attic. That's where the, the Sunday school class that I now teach was born, upstairs in that attic. At, yeah, we'd take our shoes off sometimes to go out there to pray. And that was the prayer room at Tabernacle then, before the L was built. And I remember the men going up to that prayer room in that little frame building and crying to God and praying and asking and seeking God's face. And requesting from the Lord the things we needed. Oh, how God blessed and warmed 
and gave victory and gave revival, gave blessings. Those stand out of my mind. I, I say, I don't know how many times I prayed. I don't know how many places I prayed. I prayed all kinds of places, all kinds of uh, times, uh, with all kinds of people, under all kinds of circumstances. Prayer has been a vital part of my life, for, especially since I've been in the ministry. Prayer is a, vital, is a vital part of your life as well, I'm sure. But the thing that I want to emphasize today is not what we have done or have experienced upon our knees, but the four words of verse 17 where the Bible says, And he prayed again. Well, that's what I want to impress upon your mind. And he prayed again. Oh, my soul, God's ear is not deafened. God's arm is not shortened. God's power is not diminished. The same God that heard us cry to God in the Calpesta, in the five months of praying at Pelham, down by the river on that night, I told you about a moment ago, in the old-fashioned prayer room here at Tabernacle, the same God still sits upon the throne of his majestic glory, and he's still a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God, the God that answered for Elijah can answer for God's people in 1973. Amen. And he prayed again. And he prayed again. Oh, would to God we could cry to God again and get the blessings from the Lord again to be upon us and the victories that we so dare, uh, uh, darly need again among, um, upon us. More than likely the great majority of you have burdens that you carry upon your heart unsaved loved ones that weigh heavy upon your soul, domestic problems you, you see no solution to, crises in your life that you cannot solve and cannot answer. Oh, how great we need to hear from God. And he prayed again. I'd like to remind Tabernacle of the resource of prayer. I'd like to remind you of the opportunity of prayer. I'd like to remind you all over again as if you had never prayed that God can answer your petitions. And he prayed again. And I, I don't want to ever get to the place where I think that I, I'm sufficient within myself. No, that be, that become deadly. And not only deadly to me, but become deadly to you. The moment you get off your knees, the moment you become self-sufficient within yourself, that moment you lose the power of God. And God writes Ichabod upon, uh, over the door of your soul. The glory of God hath departed from you. We need to pray. And he prayed again. Now look at the text in Acts 3 and verse 1. In Acts 3 and verse number 1, here's a favorite, uh, a familiar and a precious uh, verse in the Bible. You're familiar with it. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour prayer. And Peter and John went up together and no doubt prayed together. No doubt prayed in unison together. You say, well, prove, I couldn't prove that no more than you could disprove that. We know they went up together. We know they were together. We know they were believers together. And I have every reason to conclude, therefore, that they bowed upon their knees together and bowed upon their knees together uh, it's natural and normal for me to conclude that they prayed together. And Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, and they prayed. 
Now God helped us to see that. And he prayed again. Now I want to talk to you a moment about prayer. May I remind you that prayer is not vain repetition. It's not saying over and over again something that you've been taught to say much like a child repeats this little uh, bedroom prayer, bedtime prayer. Not bad. Prayer is not ritual. You don't go through a ritual when you pray. A prayer is to be an emotional experience. Prayer is to be a fresh experience. Prayer is to be an experience, not a ritual. Now you can go through a ritual without feeling anything. You can read a prayer book without getting anything done. But that's not prayer. Prayer is not a ritual. Then again, prayer is not a, a vain resort or a last resort or a fire escape or the one thing that you can resort to when everything else fails. You can finally pray when you've, when you've tried everything else. You can finally come to God. Prayer is not that. I think prayer ought to be the first opportunity and the first thought of the soul of every believer. When there's a crisis in my life, before I think about what I can do, before I counsel with any of my deacons, before I say one word to my wife, before I sit down with Brother Melvin or Brother French or Brother Edwards or anybody else, I ought first to bow down before God and ask God. Prayer is not a vain resort. Prayer is not a vain ritual. Prayer is not a vain repetition. Now what is prayer? I remind you that prayer is action. You remember Jesus said, when ye pray. Now that's positive. That's active. Uh, that's real. When ye pray. You don't pray accidentally. You don't pray naturally. I don't think there's one person in this building that has a natural bent to bow upon your knees. Every time I've ever bowed, and there's been many of them, many times, every time I've ever bowed upon my knees, I did so deliberately. Prayer is active. And sometimes I've had to bow against the will of my flesh. Sometimes I've had to bow in, in spite of the pressure of time. Didn't have the time, ordinarily speaking, had to bow anyway. Prayer is action. Prayer is deliberate. Prayer is action. And you will not do much prayer until you get around to making it positive and active in your life. He said, well, when I feel like it, then I'll pray. Well, you'll never pray. Now, just put that down, will you? The devil will see to it that you'll never feel right at the right time. You might get it the right place and in the right atmosphere, but the devil will make you feel wrong. Or you may feel right and be at the wrong place. It'll never work out if you wait till you feel like praying. It'll never work out. You'll never do any praying. Now, prayer is acting. Prayer is praying not because you feel like praying, but because it's the hour. Peter and John went down to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, I wonder if all of a sudden, about 9 o'clock in the morning, Peter and John began to feel like praying. No, they didn't begin to feel like praying at 8.30 or 8.45. Uh, they prayed at 9 o'clock because that was the appointed hour. And they prayed at 9 o'clock whether they felt like it or not. And so it is with you. You're not going to feel like going to the prayer room at Tabernacle and getting upon your knees. You ought to go not because you feel like it, but because the prayer room is there and because the hour has struck. And you will not do much praying until you do it deliberately. Actively. Prayer is action. And then again, prayer is exercise. 
We're to pray believing. We're to pray in faith. When you pray, you're not just to say words, but those words are to be on fire. Those words are to be living. Those words are to be seasoned by faith. Prayer is exercise. Prayer is exercise of your faith. Now, when you get out to pray, you say, well, now, I'm going through the prayer, but I don't believe God will hear me. And I don't think an answer will come. Forget it. You're wasting your time. No need to pray in that kind of a spirit or attitude. Prayer is exercise of your faith. And you have faith if you're saved. You've got it. Exercise it. Put it to use. And utilize it. If you've got saving faith, then you have praying faith. But the tragedy is you don't utilize what you've got. Prayer is exercise of faith. When you get up on your knees to pray, you may say, now, Lord, I don't see how you're going to do it. It seems impossible, but I believe you can do it. And I'm going to ask you to do it, Lord. And if you will do it, I'll appreciate it. I'll thank you, and I'll bless you, and I'll give you, I'll give you all the glory if you will do it. And you'll be surprised what you can get with that kind of exercise of faith. The Lord can do things. I could tell you stories, many stories in my own life. Uh, to illustrate that point, times when I've come up against a, a block wall, so to speak, a brick wall, so to speak, and I had no way in the world of solving or finding a solution to the problems I faced. And I had to cry to God and exercise faith. And I've seen the Lord do what I didn't think could possibly be done. I've seen him do it. Then again, prayer is confession. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And may I say that this is the main problem that me and you face in this matter of prayer. Iniquity. Regarding iniquity in your heart. That's the main offense. That's the main obstacle that keeps me and you from our knees. If I regard iniquity in my heart, and God has a way, when you bow upon your knees, God has a way of probing with his finger right down to the secret of your heart and he'll touch the thing that you're guilty of and you say to yourself, why didn't God let me alone at that point? Why is it that every time I get on my knees to pray, I think about something I don't want to think about? <laughs> and some of the sins that I thought were forgotten come up to my mind. No, you need to make a confession of those things and make restitution. And God is reminding you that as long as you regard that in your heart, your prayers will not be answered. If I look at sin in my life and try to pray over them, or around them, or tunnel beneath them, God will not hear my prayer. When I see sin in my life, whatever that sin may be, when I see it in my life and God puts his finger upon it, when I bow down to pray, then I have to confess that thing immediately and get it out. Or I'll not be able to get my prayers through to the Lord. I'll have to say, Lord, I've done wrong. I've sinned at that point. And I'm sorry. I confess it. Forgive me. And he'll forgive you. Sin is confession. Sin is confession. And God will not hear you if there's unconfessed sin in your life. Now, I could give some illustrations out of my own life at that point. I remember once the young preacher boy, for some reason, uh, turned against me. And by the way, he was one of my converts was supposed to have been converted as a result of, uh, of a sermon that I brought. But he turned against me. Sometimes that happens. I don't, 
I never enjoy that when it does happen, but it does happen. Occasionally, a young man gets the idea that he knows all the answers, and the old preacher, he's, uh, uh, he doesn't, he's not progressive, he's not uh, uh, move up, he's not uh, fast as he ought to be, he's a little slow. Uh, an older man's a little bit more cautious than a younger man. And sometimes younger fellows said, I don't have time to wait for the old man. And he moves on ahead and turns against him. Well, this boy turned against me and said some slanderous things against me. And he said those things against me in the presence of one of my friends. And my friend came and related those things to me. And the first impulse I had was to take revenge. I said to myself, well, I'll fix him up. Next time I see him, I'll give him peace of my mind. I'll tell him what I think. But you know, I got on to pray a few hours after that. And the first thing I thought about was my attitude. God brought that to my mind when I bowed to pray. And God said, now you, you're some preacher with that kind of an attitude. You're some Christian with that kind of an attitude. You're taking revenge. You are saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, Jesus said, but I say unto you, if they take your coat, give your cloak also. If they compare you to go one mile, go the second mile, said the Lord. And God said, aren't you a fine example of a Christian? Well, that kind of an attitude. He wouldn't let me pray. I couldn't pray. And I tried to pray anyway and couldn't. And finally, I said, now, Lord, if you'll forgive me for that attitude, when I see that young man, I'll tell him I love him. And I'll forget it. I'll not say a word about it. I'll never try to take revenge. If you'll forgive me for having the attitude in my mind. Well, when I made the confession and asked God to forgive me, he did. And I got through and prayed, had a good time with the Lord, went on about my business, forgot about what I'd said. But you know, the next day I was downtown. And who in the world did I walk up on? I mean, it's strange how you walk up on people. I think sometimes God must be altering. I was over at the hospital the other day and, and I punched the button for the elevator and I went up to the certain floor and when the door opened, in walked two ladies. That neither one lived in Green, neither one lived in Greenville, and they're not members of our church. But I've known them both for years, and one of them, Brother Melvin, used to shout, just shout when I preached. I preached to her many times in other churches, and uh, in my former pastorate at Pelham, and they live now in a, a distance, fifty or sixty miles away from Greenville. But anyway, uh, I used to see her. I preached, and she'd cry, great big old tears come down, and she was dressed in a tight pair of slacks. A pants suit. I don't think a woman ought to wear a pants suit in public. And when she saw me, brother, she turned red, white, and blue. I never felt so sorry for a woman in my life. What can I? The other lady had a nice dress on, but I, 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 I couldn't say a word. I just couldn't say a word. I wasn't going to say, you sure look well. I didn't think she did. <laughs> I wasn't going to say, I'm glad to see you. I was sorry to see her, brother. I wished I hadn't seen her. Next time I see that woman, it'll be hard for me to preach to her without saying something about that episode I had the other day. But I felt real bad. I really felt bad. And she was guilty. She was disturbed. She was hurt. She was offended. I felt sorry for her. But she ought to have had on a dress. Amen. She ought to have had on a dress. I ought to say that again. She should have had a dress on. But I felt bad for her. It's amazing how you run up on things. Well, I was downtown the next day, and, and I ran up on that very preacher boy. And when I saw him, God reminded me of what I'd promised him in the prayer room the day before. And I hailed him down and said, son, wait a minute. And we talked a moment, and I said, I love you now. I want you to know that. If I can ever help you, call on me. 
And I buried that hatchet. And I said, I'll not ever mention this boy's name. I'll never hurt him. I'll forgive him, though he slandered me. I never have mentioned until this day. And I buried the hatchet. And God bless me pray through. You can't pray with a wicked attitude. You can't pray with jealousy in your heart. You can't pray with worldliness in your heart. You can't pray with unforgiveness in your heart. No, you've got to confess that. I mean, everybody, not only the preacher, but the Aiken has to do that. And all the rest of you brethren have to do that. You young people have to do that. You say, well, I can pray loud enough. I can... No, you can't pray loud enough to get over it either. Well, I've got enough grace to do it. No, you haven't got enough grace. You just bank up and confess. Lord, I've sinned. And if you don't do that, it'll kill your prayer life. You'll stop praying and you'll never get an answer until you confess your wrong before God. Now, prayer is confession. If I regard iniquity, then again, prayer is asking. That's why we pray. We get up on our knees to ask God for what we need. And there's nothing wrong with that. What one of us don't face needs and crises in our lives? We ought to ask the Lord for the things we need. If ye then be evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall ye, Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them which diligently seek him. Whatever things you desire, when you pray, believe, and ye shall have them. Prayers asking. And whatever you want, you ask God. The older I get in the Lord, and in years, the more I take everything to the Lord. I mean, I pray about everything. Small things, everything. I ask the Lord about it. Mention it to the Lord. Casually, definitely, I mention it to the Lord. Ask God about everything you need. Name it. Spell it out. Say, Lord, ain't got yes, God's got plenty of time. In fact, he made time. He's got plenty of time. And he's got time to hear you spell out all your heart throbs. Just name it. If it takes you half an hour, just name it. You haven't used up God's time. He, does, he doesn't operate with time. No, sir. Just name it. Tell them. Take your burdens to the Lord. Leave them there. Pray about things. Prayer is asking. Then again, prayer is praying. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, watch it now, hallowed be thy name. No prayer is a good prayer without praise. I don't care who you are. Somewhere, sometimes, in every prayer that you pray, you ought to say, hallowed be thy name. Great is Jehovah, how great thou art. There's none beside thee. Prayer is praise. And it's the best way in the world I know to praise God. You can go in your closet and shut the door and praise God in secret. God's honored with that. Don't you think God is pleased when me and you praise him in secret? I think we ought to praise him in the congregation. The Bible speaks of praising God in the congregation as we are now. I think we ought to do that. I thank God for all of you that stand up and praise God here in our church all alone. I want you to keep on doing that. And I plan to keep on doing that. But isn't it wonderful to go to your closet and shut the door and say, hallowed be thy name, how great thou art, praise God, hallelujah. Nobody can hear just you and the Lord in the closet, down in the woods, praising God. Prayer is praise. Best way in the world to praise God is to pray. 
And sometimes in that prayer, commence to praise God. And a good way to praise God is to thank him for what he's already done. How many of you has ever had a prayer answered? Let's see your hand lifted up. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you. You may put your hands down. Now every one of you ought to praise God for that answered prayer. The next time you get down to pray, before you ask God, praise him for what he's already done. Just praise him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Nothing wrong with that, is it? Bless your name, Lord. I love you, Jesus. I believe in you, God. This world makes fun of you, but I believe in you, God. Bless your holy name, Lord. And there won't be anybody around you. Be by yourself. Your closet prayer, your door shut. Be by yourself. Don't like that to the Lord. Sometimes when I get down to pray in the prayer room up here by myself, I get up and walk around and sing, I've just heard from heaven this one thing I know. You ought to hear me sing when I, when I worship in the Lord. I've just heard from heaven. I sing that a lot of times when I pray. And when I, when I, when I hear from heaven, it makes me glad. <laughs> it's good to hear from heaven. Praise God. Prayer is praise. And then again, prayer is thanksgiving. You ought never to pray without thanking God for all of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. The Bible commands that. And when you pray, thank God. Thank God. Prayer is thanksgiving. And then last, prayer is obedience. Men ought always to pray. Now that's what the Bible says. That's not my idea. Men ought always to pray. The Bible says, watch and pray. Now, brethren, you might as well vote to take the baptistry out of the church as to neglect to go to the prayer room to pray. Now, if I were to come to the pulpit and say, now, folk, let's, uh, let's cover up the baptistry and turn the water off and take the communion table out and forget these two ordinances of a Baptist church. Let's forget it. I might as well do that, and I say that humbly. We might as well do that as for you Bible believers to pass by this prayer room up here and never go in. Same disobedience in either case. Men ought always to pray. Men ought always to pray. You don't ever graduate. Your hair may turn white, but you don't ever get too old to pray. Thank God for old people who do pray. Rather have old people pray for me than anybody I know of in the world. Hoary heads, or holy heads as far as I'm concerned. But you don't ever get over praying. You young fellas just starting out, you don't ever get over praying. I've been preaching the gospel 34 years, but I still have to get on my knees. Yeah. Yes, sir. I never go to a pulpit except I pray. Now, I'm not being a Pharisee when I say that. That's just a fact. When I'm away in meetings, last night uh, uh, Arthur Howell and uh, Brother Henry Porter w went with me up to Asheville and, and before I went to the prayer room, Brother Arthur and Henry went back to a prayer room. We three got on our knees and had us a prayer meeting before I preached last night. Now if Arthur and Henry had not been with me, I'd have prayed myself. I prayed a many a time in a many a church by myself in a prayer room before I preached. I never preach at Tabernacle unless something detains me. I never preach in this church except I go to the prayer room. Never. Unless I'm late or get detained or some reason beyond my control. 
I go by the prayer room. You do the same. Men ought always to pray. That's obedience. Obedience. You talk about being an obedient Christian. Uh, let's, let's pray. Uh, being obedient in this matter of prayer is as important as being obedient in the matter of witnessing. Right. I, I believe in witnessing. I believe everybody ought to be a witness for Jesus. And wherever you are, you ought to stand up for the Lord and be a witness for the Savior and try to get people right with God. Now, that's, uh, that'd, be, uh, that'd be gross disobedience if you didn't do that. Suppose, suppose me and you decided to come worship in this building and let the world go to hell and bring in all our missionaries. Stop giving any money. Cut off all the radio. Stop broadcasting. Uh, Brother Ronald Rule doing something else. Knock on no more doors. Never do any other witnessing. Go to the job and never speak up for the Lord. When they're cussing, just never speak up. When they're drinking, never rebuke them. When they're gambling, never rebuke them. Suppose we don't do that. That'd be silly. That'd be crazy. Because we are commanded to be witnesses. We don't have any choice. If we're obedient, we must be witnesses for the Savior. If we're obedient, we have no alternative but to be a witness for God, whether it's easy or hard. But wait a minute. By the same logic, how about this business of praying? Men ought always to pray. And if you don't pray, then you're disobedient. Now catch the spirit of my text. Where the Bible says about Elijah, and he prayed again. Now I prayed a lot of times in my life, but I want to pray again, brethren. And if I live to get to the prayer altar, I'm going to bow my knee another time. As long as my old bones will allow me to do so, I plan to get on my knees and cry to God. And he prayed again. Now some of you folk have neglected praying. And I wanted to drive these four words home to you. And he prayed again. God's still waiting for you in the closet. God's still waiting for you as you pray with your family. God's still waiting for you out in the woods as you have an old-fashioned prayer meeting by yourself. God's waiting for you. But it's been a long time since, like Peter and John, you went to the place of prayer at the appointed hour. Been a long time. And he prayed again. God's not dead. God's still waiting. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.